following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. Hello everyone, it's Pastor Alan here again for All Saints Lutheran Church. This is the weekend of our first outdoor service, the first of two that we have planned I don't know if when you're going to be watching this, but over these next two weeks, uh, this is the message for the 16th of August. Over the next two weeks, I'm going to continue doing um, uh, these pre-recorded sermons for you. And then the plan at this point is on August the 30th, we hope to go inside the church building and we're hoping to uh, do the recordings there uh, live in 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 the midst of the congregation and, and to do it that way. But we'll see. We're going to see how it goes, taking this one step at a time. Hope everyone is doing well. Um, if you have any questions about any of this, remember, please contact me at pastor at allsaintslutheran.ca. We're continuing our series, of course, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, which uh, I've entitled The Remarkable Gospel. And I know I keep mentioning that. Uh, I continue to be overwhelmed by what I'm encountering. Uh, as I've been immersing myself in this magnificent version of the story of Jesus. And um, I hope uh, you're experiencing something similar as it's such an evocative, engaging version of of the story of Jesus. We are getting to the end of what I'm seeing is the second section in the story. There's There's actually three sections in the way that Mark... Uh, probably originally Peter, told the story. In the first section, which happens around the region of the Galilee in the north of Israel, that's the, right from the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, through the middle of chapter 9, uh, we learn about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Then in the second section, which we're hoping to complete uh, in this message, that's from the middle of chapter 9 to the end of chapter 10, we discover, according to Jesus, who are we? Who? How do we fit in to, to his story, to God's story, to life? And it's, it's quite, the lessons learned in this middle section are actually quite difficult because they are so different from what they were used to in his day and what human beings have been used to since the beginning of time and even today, even as believers. And that's a lot of the, the point of, of Mark's gospel seems to be for believers, not just non-believers who might be hearing this for the first time, but for believers, uh, that, that are we really walking with Jesus in the way that God has called us to? And to reckon with the fact that understanding Jesus' ways can be very difficult, even for those who are closest to them. So his, the, the, the 12 apostles in his day, all the way to us in our own day. And this section uh, from middle of nine to end of chapter 10 occurs during the transition from going from the, the north Galilee down to the south to the city of Jerusalem. The third section, which God willing will begin next time, takes us from verse one of chapter 11 till the, till the end of uh, end of the gospel. It all happens around the region of Jerusalem, and here's where we see how Jesus fulfills his mission. But to understand his mission, to understand 
how we're to relate to who he is and what he's done, we need to come to grips with what we've been looking at the past several times in this middle section, which God willing will complete today. And if we don't understand how to relate to who he is and what he's done, then we're just spectators to the story and we're not really going to understand what it's about or take our place in what he's come to do. Uh, This second section, some weeks ago, I referred to what Jesus is teaching us here as I've referred to it as the upside down kingdom. Now, of course, it's really the right side up kingdom uh, as he's helping human beings to discover really who we are and how to relate to life and God. And he's confronting our the way we're mixed up, the way we're upside down. And so to us, his ways of doing things can seem really upside down. And so he continues to confront common ways of thinking. Again, common ways back then that are still common today. We might be used to his teaching, and yet I don't know if we fully have uh, grasped how radical what he's saying really is, and have we allowed ourselves to be turned right side up by him in the way life is really supposed to be lived. Last time, we looked at the story of the the rich man who believed that that inheriting eternal life was done through his achievements, uh, be it his um, passion for doing religion in a right way, um, or the security that he had by having many possessions. Uh, He claimed to be giving it all when it came to following God and his word, But then when he was called to give up those things that provided him security, he couldn't do it. And that section ends in chapter 10, verse 31, with, but many who are first will be last and the last first. That's that sense of his upside down kingdom, that the way we think life really works, what we think was really important, who is really important, how to achieve that importance, that we really have it. Um, upside down. And so let's begin by reading our section this week. We're, usually I, I read more for context, but I, I think we, uh, we've, we've gotten the picture enough, and so I'm going to be reading uh, the verses that we'll be looking at, and that's chapter 10, verse 32, through the end of the chapter, verse 52. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise." And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, 
The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. And we pray that you would help help me to communicate your word well and help all of our hearts to receive what you have to say to us through this message. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's look again. Verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. So their journey continues. They're going up to Jerusalem because you always go up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem being uh, at a high level, uh, about two and a half thousand feet above sea level. And they actually have quite a walk up. When By the time they get to, to Jericho, they're well below sea levels. They have about a, a 3,000 foot, 1,000 meter walk ahead of them and this walk that they're taking there's there's the disciples the close ones the 12 who we call the apostles other followers of him and by now crowds have been gathering along the way because they are heading up to jerusalem to celebrate the feast of passover and we see jesus walking ahead of them there's this purposefulness not just because he was the master but there's this this feeling of there's a real purposefulness to his going to Jerusalem because that's where he's going to fulfill his very difficult mission. And we read also in verse 32, and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. It's it's likely that the ones who were amazed, and this is a, a, a word we see throughout the Gospel of Mark, it's partly where I got the, the title, the remarkable gospel, they're astounded, they're overwhelmed uh, by what they've been experiencing and hearing from Jesus. And then the others, that could be disciples, could be the crowd, they were afraid. There was just this kind of sense of, of foreboding, like what, what's going on here? This is unusual. And it, there's like an angst is, is forming among the people as they get closer to, to Jerusalem and possibly too in, in trying to digest the things that he's been teaching. Uh, what he's been saying has been difficult and it it's impactful and it's disturbing. And if we're not feeling somewhat agitated, somewhat disturbed, 
uh, he's remember it's this upside down kingdom, which is really his uh, right side up kingdom. That uh, there should be a sense of disorientation, and it, it, it's true with life in general. As as God is is teaching us things, if we're just taking everything in stride, we may not be really hearing, and certainly not really learning the things that God is seeking to teach us. And we're still in verse 32. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Verse 33, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So this is the third time he according to the mark in the gospel mark that the third time he's teaching his disciples about his rejection death and resurrection this is the most detailed time and one of the added details is that he's going to be given over to the gentiles now to put ourselves into the sandals of his followers of that day we need to remember how ridiculous this actually is they've come to see him as the messiah the deliverer of israel and he's talking about not not only dying suffering dying and this thing about rising that they just don't get but given over to the gentiles this is the complete opposite of what messiah in their minds was supposed to do he was supposed to overthrow the romans and liberate the people of Israel. And now he's talking about being given over to the Gentiles, which would be a, uh, not only not according to plan, but such a shameful thing. And so it's it would be probably very difficult for them to hear anything that he's saying if he's talking like this. And that seems to be what, what goes on. The, the first time he talked about it, Peter rebukes him that this shouldn't happen to him. And Jesus then rebukes Peter, calling him Satan. The, the second time uh, is followed by the disciples arguing among themselves about who's the greatest. And, and that's what we're seeing here in this section here is that they don't understand true greatness. And he's trying to teach them priorities and, and, and position and place and how that's supposed to work in the, and under the rule of God, the kingdom of God. And so here... In verses 35 through 37, we get another reaction. And this is particularly from James and John. Verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Wow, what the, what a wonderful response from the Lord. And it's going to come up again uh, as we get to the at uh, the end of our, of our time together uh, in this message. And they answered him, and they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. What? Like, have they been listening to anything he's been saying at all? Didn't Weren't they already arguing about who's the greatest? Didn't he already say the 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 first will be last and last will be first? And they're now asking for place and position. And, position. and it, it seems that they're being driven by some sort of political uh, way of thinking, which is very common. You're in this group. Uh, I don't know what they understood by his talking about his 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 death, but he's on a resurrection. I guess somehow they they think it's going to all work out in the end. And when it all works out, they want to make sure that they've got first and second place. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? And I, I think to answer the question of why do we do that is 
we do that. And we need to reckon with the fact that God is seeking to accomplish his will in and through our lives, and yet we, we tend to be so consumed about our place and position. And Jesus res- responds to this, verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. They were clued out. And when we think politically as we're walking with Jesus, when we're more concerned about our place and position, we're clued out. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to them, we are able. Now this thing about the cup is probably his suffering and the baptism is just the overwhelmingness of his mission. Being immersed in the will of God. And while they say we can do that, they don't really understand what they're what they're talking about, except for the fact that they understand that they're so very connected to Jesus, who he is, and what he's doing. They're, they are in. They're out of it in terms of their understanding of what who Jesus is and what his mission's all about and what it means for them, but they know that they're in. And that's a good thing. Because who are the ones that get corrected for getting it wrong more than anybody but those who are closest to them? And so if we're paying attention, if we're truly walking with the Lord, we will be corrected. Then the question is, will we receive that correction and learn the lessons that he's seeking to teach us? So Jesus says, then the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. Even though they don't really understand what it is, he's affirming that they are part of him and what he's doing and what he will be doing and, and so on. Verse 40, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. We are not to be concerned about place and position. This is something that God the Father establishes throughout time and in our lives. We need to be concerned about what it really means to follow him. But look what happens with the, the rest of the of the disciples. Verse 41, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They're still going at it. Didn't they learn a lesson from before? And it, it's not as if the other ten uh, were kind of like, huh, they don't understand. We learned the lesson. It's not about place and position. It's like they're still in that place, and it's going to take them a while to learn it. And and you know what? It's taken me a while to learn, and I don't know if I've learned this lesson. I'm still often more concerned about my place and my you know and and my position and 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 like the rich man and connected to my possessions and sense of security. These are difficult lessons to learn, but thank God he's patient with us. But let's not take let's not take his his patience for granted. Let's learn this lesson as soon as possible. Verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, "You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them." So notice his lesson concerning how to learn how properly to relate to things like leadership. He doesn't point to King David. He doesn't point to the great leaders of Israel. He doesn't even start by appointing to himself. He first references the hated oppressors. So he, what he's doing, he's likening their tendency towards place and position to the 
to the pagan oppressors. And he, he shows them what this is really like, that they're actually like Caesar and his puppets who use their, their power to control the lives of people. And he says, don't do it that way. That's for non-believers. That's not for the people of God. That's not how the people of God are to behave in the way they are to live. And this is really a good word for today's justice seekers. There are victims of wrong in this world. And we need to pray and we need to work on behalf of them. And if anyone watching this is part of a group that's truly or perceived to be oppressed, we need to do justice the way Jesus does justice. That's all I'm going to say about that at this time. So he continues, verse 43, But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave at all. The upside-down kingdom, or turning people right-side up. True importance comes from service. That's what it's about. And this is actually what we were made for. I'm sure I've referred to this before here or other uh, in uh, other teachings that I've been doing. Adam and Eve were put in the garden to serve, to be stewards of the creation. With their rebellion against God, we got twisted. We got turned wrong way up. And we've been approaching life wrongly ever since. And even as believers, we're still tainted with, with that tendency to lord leadership over people rather than serving them in the way that we were designed to do and through jesus we are being redesigned to do he says that whoever should be first should be slave of all we're to be god's servant unto everyone now that could sound as if we're to be under the beck and call of everybody and just do what everybody says but that's not really what he means here it's not that we're to be everybody's slave, we're to be God's slave unto everyone. He's our true master, and he is calling us to serve other people. And that's what Jesus did. And it's interesting here when he asks people, what do you want me to do for you, and how he responds. And I'll explain that more in in, in a moment. But he... Nobody served people like he did, but he didn't live by everybody's agenda, which I think is what some people think being servant of all is. It's just, well, do what do everything what everybody says. But that that's terrible. That's 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 self-imposed oppression. We're not to be obeying everybody. We're to be obeying God. And in our obedience to God and our service to God, we serve other people. That's how we know when to say yes and when to say no to others. He talks about himself, verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So his own example, he was was never owned by others. Um, Let's go on. The next section in this healing of this blind man is the great climactical example of what he's been trying to teach in this section. The disciples have been struggling 
with place and position and the rich man and holding on to his possessions and thinking that he could earn his way to inheriting eternal life. Just tell me what to do and I'm going to do it. And everything you tell me to do, I've done it. And But then he can't really do the thing that God really wants him to do, which was to not be controlled by his possessions. And then we get this man. Let's see what happens here. Verse 46. And then they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, that's what Bartimaeus means, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He knows the blind man sees better than everybody else. Other people are having trouble with him. And he knows who Jesus is. How he knows, we don't know. Did he, whatever he heard, whatever other people told him, we don't know. But he knows. He knows exactly who Jesus is. And he's in touch with his need. And he knows who to go to for his need. So he has better sight than those who can see. Verse 48. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. So it's so ironic. Like he's locked in to the kingdom of God, to the true rule of God, centered in the in King Messiah himself, and other people are trying to get him to be quiet. But he cries out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. This is our example. This is the childlike humility that Jesus has been trying to teach people at how his kingdom actually works. Be like children. Receive the least of these. You know, they, they've been hearing some of this and they're trying to, they're trying to, Stop him um, from connecting with Jesus. And yet he is the very example that they and we are supposed to follow. Verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. Um, you know, that's really nice that now they're getting with the program that Jesus directs them to do so. And verse 50, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And I don't know if that's normal behavior for blind people to do, but this guy was ready. Jesus is calling him. And so off goes the cloak and he's coming to Jesus, blind and all. Verse 51, and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? That's the same question he asked James and John. James and John, who have ready access to the master, have a request. What do you want me to do for you? The only difference in the Greek between these two questions is the first one is plural, referring to, in, in Greek, uh, we have a plural you, just like in French, um, uh, where vous is, is plural. And, um, and so that's the only difference. One's plural with James and John. This is singular because it's talking to one man, but it's the same question. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man answers the question. It says, and the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And uh, he, so he just answers the question. Notice he, he doesn't put on airs except he honors him by referring to him with the honorific title, Rabbi, my teacher, my master. Um, but he just asks him. And all he wants is to be able to see again. Now, some people would think he's the one that's not with the program because his real need is a spiritual one. His real need is his sin. His real need is his alienation from God. And, and, and maybe this is a good time for Jesus to get the crowd together and instruct everybody that we shouldn't be so concerned about their, our physical problems and we should focus on the more important so-called spiritual problems. But that's not what happens. Verse 52. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. 
And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. He just does it for him. In fact, there was something about his his childlike humility and trust in Jesus that was the, the connecting dynamic that brought him freedom from his oppression, in his case, his blindness. And look what he does here. You know, there, was, there were people that Jesus said, go home and tell people or go to the priest and show them that you're clean. He said to the, to the leper, you know, don't tell anybody. And uh, here he just says, go your way. and just gives him this complete freedom. And what does he does? He joins the, cl- the crowd and he starts following Jesus. This, this was a man who was really with it. He is the example of the become like a child. He's the example of, of the last will be first. Like He was not prominent. Uh, he, was, he was a blind beggar. He was an outcast of the society. He was everything that the rich man was not. And he's the one that's now following Jesus. He already had spiritual sight. And now he has physical sight too. You don't have to wait for the big touch of Jesus to, to gain spiritual sight. And may all of us who are struggling physically, may we know his healing. And until we know his healing, may we know his sustaining grace to get us through another day. But I wonder... How would we answer the question if Jesus came to us today and said, what do you want me to do for you? Well, first of all, do we even come to him? Lord, I have a question. Lord, I have a need. And I know we can kind of mutter prayers and we struggle with 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 our needs and our frustrations. But to ask him directly, Jesus, I have a need. I have something I need you to do for me. And to think that his response Knowing what's going on with these people, what do you want me to do for you? I believe that's what he's asking all of us today. What do you want me to do for you? Do we have the freedom to ask him what are what we really want? Or do we start to to, to go to try to give him what we think he wants us to tell him. He really wants to know where we're at. He really wants us to express our needs to him. But no, we don't know what the answer is going to be. We don't know if we're going to get an answer like James and John, which is you don't know what you're asking, or what or have our request granted, like blind Bartimaeus. But we're not going to know unless we actually tell him what we want to really tell him and i think that's what we need to leave each other with with this message jesus is asking us today what do you want me to do for you let's pray father we thank you that your son has made himself servant of all and that he came to give everything to rescue us. Help us to hear the question and help us to have the freedom that the blind man had that day to just tell you what we really want and then give us ears to hear what you have to say to us that whatever our situation, whatever our perceived need is, we will get your perspective on it and that we would get the grace that we need to be 
the people who you've called us to be, that we would be free from the things that continue to oppress us, and that we would follow you along the way, that you would lead us where you want to take us. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. And so until next time, whether in person or through through this format, um, looking forward to seeing you. Uh, again, if you have any questions or concerns, please email me at pastor at allsaintslutheran.ca. And so until next time, stay safe. May the Lord be with you all. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca. Thank you.